0: Good morning. If you've been around, uh, you know we've been slowly working our way through the Apostles Creed. And we're going kind of line by line through this uh, very ancient creed. And we've been talking about uh, a a number of things, uh, one being the nature of belief, what belief is and isn't, the nature of belief, uh, the nature of doctrine, and the nature of trampolines. Uh, which, I, I mean that. Uh, do you remember the first time you were on a trampoline? No? You don't remember, Greg? No? Okay. Never mind. Um, <laughs> moving on. No, no. Uh, I, I remember being at my friend Les Branton's house. It's was in Cameras, Alberta, the first time being on a, a real trampoline. You know, we're not talking the exercise four-foot trampolines where you get no height. This was a real backyard trampoline in the suburbs. And to be on this thing and to discover the closest thing I'd ever uh, come to in flight, right, flight, and then to discover the joy of double bouncing, right, even extra height and the risk and the injury... Uh, That comes with that. Uh, This is about flight and freedom and joy and double bouncing and risk. And so I want to talk about this relationship between trampolines and faith. Between springs and doctrine. When you're jumping, you don't really notice the springs. You're not thinking, oh, this is so great. Look at all these springs. How many are there? You're not counting the springs. You're just Jumping you're just jumping. The springs help drive us into the experience of jumping. But imagine these springs as statements of faith. Imagine these springs as beliefs or doctrines that help give words to the experience in jumping. The springs are the doctrines of the faith. The springs aren't God. They aren't the point. The trampoline is not for the springs. The springs are for the trampoline. Jumping is the point. The springs are means and not an end. So take whatever spring you want, the, the, the trinity, the, the doctrine of, uh, say, of sin, or the doctrine of uh, the virgin birth, whatever it is. You take a spring, a doctrine, and you can look at it. You could take it out. You could turn it around. You could pull on it a bit. You look through it, probe it, talk about it, and you notice the spring flexes and it stretches. That's what springs do. And in fact, the flex and the, the stretch are what make it effective because it's attached to both the frame and the mat. But it's got room to move. And it helps bring a fuller, deeper understanding to the mystery of God. Now, contra- contrast a spring with a brick. Okay? Okay. Actually, picture a wall of bricks, very different than a trampoline. A wall made up of bricks. Each brick is a core piece of doctrine. Each brick is a belief, carefully balanced and stacked. And slowly over time, you've added enough enough of these up, and you've got a wall. Brick by brick, you've built a wall. And there is a way of doing faith this way, by brick by brick, building a wall. But this way of doing faith is problematic for so many reasons. First, in brick world, or we could just say in brickianity, um, in brickianity, the focus is getting people to also believe in these particular bricks so that then they can be in. And when you're in, you get others in. And, and the problem with this is that it's possible to, to believe all the, and to have all the correct bricks It's possible to to have all of the correct bricks in place and yet have the core of your heart and the core of your life untouched and unmoved. This is what Jesus particularly had a problem with. It's possible to have all the right doctrine in place and not look like Jesus. Also, bricks are a problem because even though they make great walls, walls have the appearance of strength and rigidity But as soon as you begin to examine or rethink or want to look at one of those bricks, if you were to pull one or two even out, the whole thing starts to shake with an insecure wobble. If you start pulling out bricks, then the whole thing could start to crumble. A brick is fixed, not flexible. It can't flex or change. If it did flex or change, it would no longer fit in the wall. And so what happens then is the wall eventually becomes the sum total of beliefs and God becomes the size of the wall. And if you do anything to the wall, then you're doing something to God. You ever done that? Ever pulled out a brick and feel like, I I think the whole thing's about to crumble. That's how it works in, in brick world. Walls are defending and dividing. Trampolines, on the other hand, are for jumping. Now, stay with me. (laughs) Hear me. Springs matter. This is why we need to study and to debate and to argue and to listen and to examine the springs. Doctrine helps us put words to the realities that go deeper than words. But doctrine, the springs only work when they serve the greater cause. And the greater cause is people on a trampoline jumping. (laughs) Springs are massively important. They hold up the mat, but they're not God. I can jump and still have questions. Jesus invites people to jump. That's what we see him doing in the gospel. Because what's the point of trampolines? Flight, double-bouncing risk, fear, this is nuts, let's do it again, which really is what the gospel writer is saying in John 20, 31, summarizing his biography of Jesus says this, Uh, next slide, do we have slides? Oh, we don't have slides, okay, that's fine, Um, it says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Do you hear that? The whole point is that you learn to trust. You come to trust, and in trusting, you'd have life. You'd have life in His name. That's fine. We'll go sand dune. Um, (laughs) That that works too. It's okay. Um, The point is life. So this is why we're looking... It's okay, Jillian, we don't need slides, it's fine. Um, This is why we're looking at the Apostles' Creed. Each week, in a way, taking out a spring. Taking out a spring collectively, looking at this and go, does this bear weight? I want to know if this is good, beautiful, and true. To look at it, to examine it, and ultimately to encourage jumping. That's, That's the point. And so let's look at this creed. Uh, together. If if you want to say these words, if you want to make this your confession this morning, I invite you to do so. Oh, but well, that's not going to help. <laughs> All right. They're not even up there. No, no, that's okay. Let's just ca- carry on. This going to be good for me. Um. Okay. La- so last week, uh, we started on this part of the phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Last week's sermon, I think, was better than this one's going to be. Um, can, can you say that ahead of time? Um, it's probably not good, good preaching. But um, we, we looked at who is Jesus and what might it mean to believe or to believe into him. These are very simple but deep questions. And so this week, I want to look at these titles. Believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Jesus being his first name. It's a proper name. It identifies him as a historical person. This is Mary's son from Nazareth in Galilee. This is a Jewish ex-carpenter who worked for three years as a rural rabbi and was put to death by the Roman authorities. This is Jesus Christ Christ. Isn't really his last, that's not his last name. That's not a surname. But that's identifying Jesus as God's appointed Savior King. And we're going to examine that a bit. Only Son. This is a statement that Jesus is God's only Son. He's as truly and fully God as the Father is. And then our Lord. Uh, This little phrase, Jesus is Lord, appears about close to 300 times in the New Testament. It's the church's earliest creed. And so uh, that little creed, which maybe for us just can kind of float by, it sounds like what you'd expect to hear in church, Jesus is Lord. But when the church is saying that, they're boring a slogan from their times, the Caesar is Lord. And so it's a very contested slogan to use, Jesus is Lord. So let's uh, let's go to the scriptures uh, together in Matthew 16. If you've got a chair Bible there. No way. How did you do that? Press wow. Okay. You're on your own for page number, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so this is uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 13. Let's read these, uh, these verses together up to verse 20. So when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, Uh, doing what he often does, and that's ask questions. I think it's it's just that alone is pretty interesting. Last week, we talked about how Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is God's great living statement, and that statement comes with questions. This is Jesus, one of his favorite things to do, ask questions. He says, who are the people saying that I am? Just hold on here. We're a little... Yeah, there we go. He says, what's the word on the street? What are the rumors? Who do people say that I am? And so the answer is, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, maybe Jeremiah. So the word on the street, maybe he's a reincarnated prophet. He's a bit of a nuisance, possibly a threat. He's a good teacher. So there's a swirling mix of opinion and fact. And that swirling mix has always existed around Jesus. What to make of him? Just one other note, Jesus' style. Jesus' style is unique in that he never force feeds his followers. He always evokes. Jesus' preference was meals, parables, stories, healing people, bringing people along, people belonging before they believe. That's, that was Jesus' style. And, and nowhere else in the Gospels do we see him being this direct. So he, he's being really direct. He's pressing the point. He's saying, what do people say about me? And then, verse 15, it, the focus tightens. He says, well, what about you? And that's where the emphasis is. What do you say that I am? What do you say that I am? And so Peter gives this startling answer. It says you are the Christ. Now the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the H- Hebrew Scriptures, so this is the first Testament, the Old Testament, translated into Greek, and that translation uh, in Greek there's 29 times in the Old Testament where that word, uh, a phrase, "anointed King," is translated in Greek as Christos. So that's that's what Paul or that's what Peter is saying. You're the Christos. You're the Messiah. You're the long awaited king. You're the Christos. It's really clear. He's like you're he doesn't say I think you you might be the Christos or a Christos or or Jesus definitely for us for our little circle. You're 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 a good Christos. it's, it's very clear. You are the Christos. Now, where he's saying this heightens the drama even more. Now, I've got a map, which I don't think... Nope, maps never help on the screen. So, because uh, you can't read it. But at the very top there, the northernmost town is Caesarea Philippi. And if you look in verse 13, the gospel writer lets us know where we're located. That's where we're located. Caesarea Philippi. So this is the northernmost border town it's it's on the boundary between Israel and the world, and this is where Jesus is going is going to reveal something about his nature. It's on the boundary place. Now, previously, Caesarea Philippi was called uh, Paneus or Panion. Uh, this was named after the god of Pan. This is the roots of pantheism. Okay, the, if, if you know anything about pantheism, this is, this is uh, basically the belief that God is everything and everything is God. If you, if you need a teaching on this, just watch the movie Avatar, if you remember that movie. You remember Avatar, right? And so avatars uh, will, will help you understand what pantheism is. So that's, that's the roots, Panaeus. And before that, it was a place of worship to the god Baal. And there was, there was temples there. And most recently, this city was given to Herod the Great by Emperor Augustus Caesar. And Herod's son Philip rebuilt the city and changed the name from Panion to the Caesar city of Philip. The Caesar city of Philip. So, which is kind of a way to honor Caesar as well as himself. The Caesar city of Philip. Um, And so, that's where this conversation is happening. Caesarea Philippi. A place renamed, a place where Herod the Great built a temple to Caesar. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, you know that this empire, like all empires, loves to flex its muscle. Loves to demonstrate its power. So when Jesus is saying, you are the Christos, he's saying, you are the king. You are president. You're prime minister. And he's saying this in the midst of another kingdom. Rome rules from India to England. And in the shadow of this empire, Peter says, Jesus, you are king. You are king. There isn't another earthly power that you do not rule over, and there's not another heavenly or spiritual power that exists that you do not rule over. Just consider what Peter's saying in the place that he's saying it. You, Jesus, are the question and the answer. You are the point. You are the meaning. You are it. And Jesus affirms Peter's words, sort of. Watch what what Jesus says here in verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then, I don't know how how it's laid out in your Bible there, but if you look a little further, we won't go too deep into this, but in chapter 16, the last half of chapter 16, from verse 21 on, Jesus starts going into some very troubling terrain. He's saying, Peter, you're right. I I am the Messiah, but I'm going to be a crucified Messiah. And he explains that he's going to have to suffer a lot of things. He's going to be rejected He's going to be judged. He's going to be killed. And then ultimately on the third day, he's, he's going to be raised to life. So Jesus later says, yeah, I am the Messiah. I, I am your king, but the way I lead is not in the way you're expecting or necessarily even wanting. I'm a crucified Messiah. I lead with suffering and with weakness, which was super hard to accept. Peter didn't like it at first. One, one writer says, how Jesus is the Christ will have to be worked out painfully until finally the explanation is nailed to wood. So Peter has the first right, first part right. Yes, Jesus, you're the Messiah. But the back half, Jesus is having to, to correct his theology. He's saying, I'm, I'm actually a crucified Messiah. So Jesus is king. Well, what kind of king? Well, embarrassingly, a crucified one, a suffering king. Well, then, what comes with this king? Because every kingdom comes with a culture, comes with a way of life. So what comes with this king? And this is what we read in the Gospels. We see that this kingdom, Jesus uses authority to create belonging and to heal bodies and to save and to rescue. We can read that and we can still say, yeah, but what kind of king and what kind of kingdom is this? And might I might I live in this kingdom? Would I want to submit to this rule? I think some form of question, that question is already always swirling around. So one thing to remember about the Apostles' Creed uh, that we've looked at, I think each week, is that the Apostles' Creed, the roots of it were in the baptismal rite. So these are words that people would be saying as they walk down into the waters of baptism. And so to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, is to say, I believe there's one king, and I'm attaching myself to him. My whole life is located in relationship to Jesus. So it's, this attachment is personal, but it's also universal. And I want to show you one way that this started getting worked out. So in the ancient church, this confession that Jesus is Lord began actually to start changing the fabric of their society. You, you likely know, Christianity takes root in societies that were really stratified and hierarchical. There's really clear distinctions between groups of people, between men and women, rich and poor, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. So Those distinctions are always happening. But then this Christian community started refusing to accept people on those distinctions. Refused to respect people based on those distinctions. Because everyone comes to the the same baptismal waters and confesses the same Lord. And when you enter into the waters of baptism... And we've noted before that the ancient practice was you do so unclothed without any of your accessories. So no brands, nothing to set you apart or above other people. You're just like everyone else. When you enter into those waters of baptism, no one could tell the difference between someone who is rich or poor, slave or free. And so then when the Christian movement had barely begun... It just had started making this confession that Jesus is Lord. We find Paul urging a guy named Philemon. This tiny little book in the New Testament, whose Paul's urging Philemon to change his mindset in light of Jesus being Lord. Now, Onesimus used to be Philemon's slave, but Onesimus has run away. And Onesimus encounters Paul, hears the good news of Jesus from Paul, and becomes a follower of Jesus. And so his conscience is bugging him, and he thinks, I, I better go back to my owner. But he's obviously a little worried about what kind of welcome he's going to find if he goes back to an owner that he's run away. And so Paul's writing this letter ahead of Onesimus, saying to Philemon, I want, I want you to change your mind here. And, and he actually, these are Paul's words. He says, I want you to regard Anisimus as no longer a slave, but better than a slave, as a beloved brother. All because Jesus is Lord. Now, by the fourth century, we're starting to see people who are working this out. Uh, Gregory of nyssa Totally condemns slavery. This is, this, again, this is very shocking in the ancient world. He's condemning slavery. He saw it as a problem because he, he said it creates a false lordship. By making one person the master of another, human beings claim an authority that only belongs to God, says Nisia. He says, you have forgotten the limits of your authority. The world has only one Lord, and this Lord does not enslave, but calls us to freedom. So, what kind of king is this, and what kind of kingdom comes with this king? What is it like to experience his rule? One example from history, one thing, because Jesus is Lord, these divisions, these ways of working power get dismantled. Jesus' Lordship rehumanizes people. Again, nowhere else do we see this in the ancient world. An egalitarian ethic. And the ancient institution of slavery, as you know, did not just vanish all at once. But when sli- slaves and free people would stand beside each other, confessing the creed, when slaves and free people would enter the waters of baptism and begin a new community, and they take the name of Jesus on their lips, the tectonic plates underneath started shifting. And a slow revolution began. I think that's awesome. That, that's what comes, that's one thing that comes with confessing Jesus as Lord. What kind of king is this and what kind of kingdom? I think it's pretty cool. There's, uh, in our moment, we're still talking about this, aren't we? We're talking about these divisions. We're talking about these power plays, people setting themselves up over other people. There's a lot of conversation, we're having a wider conversation regarding white supremacy, especially on the, on the heels of the Christchurch massacre. There's a wider conversation of white supremacy and how that is tied to the way of Jesus. When you see pictures of Klansmen in white hoods and behind them on big letters on the wall, Jesus saves, there's some work to be done there to, to say, is that what comes with this kingdom? I was uh, reading Lisa Sharon Harper. I just want you to see her face because I'm going to read you a quote that she absolutely drops fire on, but I want you to see how nice and amazing she is. Um, so get ready for some heat. Lisa's about to bring it here. Um, I was re- reading uh, this this last week, and wanted to share you, this with you. This is probably the longest quote ever shared, but I'm only sharing one quote this morning, and so I'm allowed to. Okay. So this is Lisa... Sharon Harper, in, in this wider conversation about white supremacy, she's talking to white folks. Uh, we've got a few of those here this morning. And she says, she says that this, To all the people designated white by colonizing nations who are becoming disillusioned by our evangelical or Christian faith, when you walk away from Jesus, you are not woke. You're operating out of the white supremacy you say you abhor. Now buckle up. She's just starting here. When you walk away from Jesus and Christian faith to be woke, you're walking away from a faith that sprang from brown, indigenous, colonized people. You're walking away from faith born on the underside of empire in the context of oppressed peoples. You're walking away from the faith of enslaved people who found such profound liberation in Jesus that they broke laws to gather together and worship outside among the trees. You're walking away from faith that ignited ecclesiological resistance, the the ecclesiological resistance of Richard Allen and Absalom Jones. They insisted the image of God in them was equal to white Christians who would not pray with them. They founded the historic black church. When you walk away from Jesus, you are walking away from the faith of Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Benjamin Mays, Howard Thurman, Fannie Lou Hamer, Jesse Jackson, and Martin Luther King. You ain't woke. When you walk away from Jesus, you're walking away from the faith of Cesar Chavez, Oscar Romero, Dolores Huerta, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Mother Teresa. You are not woke when you reject Christianity in order to escape white supremacy. You're demonstrating just how captive you are to its fundamental belief that God and Jesus and Christianity and Santa are white. None of them are, and Santa isn't real. (laughs) Christianity is not white man's religion. It was hijacked and reinterpreted by white men whose nations traded slaves. These men's theologies did not prevent their nations from centuries of global slave trade. It is good and right to reject slaveholder religion. It is arrogant, ignorant, and white supremacist to toss aside Christianity because of white supremacy. Christianity is the liberating religion of the enslaved. So, what is Lisa Harper doing here? Uh, A bunch of things, most of which I'm not even catching on to. I think one of the things she's doing is saying, see the tradition. See that the tradition is wide and it's long. Last week we talked about how confessing the creed to say Jesus is Lord is to be both rebellious and faithful at the same time. It's to be re- rebellious against anything that sets itself up against the way of Jesus. It's to be rebellious against colonization and racism and apathy. We, we mentioned all those things. And it's to be faithful to the Lordship, the reign of Jesus Confessing the creed is to be rebellious and faithful at the same time. So, a few things, what this might mean. First, in Matthew 16, what we're seeing here, I just want to come back to the text first and talk about a couple implications and then wrap up. In, in Matthew 16, we're seeing a conversation between Jesus and Peter. But in many ways, it's a microcosm of the church. It's a conversation between Jesus and the church. This is what I mean. Jesus is establishing a new community, a church, based on, built on this rock, this confession of Jesus. Jesus is building a relationship with a, a very much a Peter-like church. And Jesus gives Peter two names in Matthew 16. First, he names him the rock. This confession that Jesus is Lord is rock solid. It's trustworthy. It's fun, you can build on this. It's trustworthy. But later on in verse 16, we didn't look at this part, so you, you'll have to just take my word that it's there. You can look at it later. Later on in Matthew 16, Matthew, or Peter re- resists Jesus when Jesus says, my way of leadership is going to involve suffering. I'm going to be a crucified Messiah. And Peter resists him. And when Peter resists him, when Peter gets in the way of Jesus' particular way of being king. Now hear this. When when Peter gets in the way of Jesus, do you remember what Jesus called Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus names Peter two things, rock and Satan. Jesus talks to his church, his Peter-like church, I think, in the same way. You are the rock. You are means of tremendous healing in the world, justice. Uh, We just looked at one example of of bringing down slavery. The The witness of the good news. You are rock. But you are also means of tremendous wounding, of colonization, racism, actual evil. So the strongest language is given. Get behind me, Satan. I think there's tremendous hope here that Jesus both encourages and rebukes his church. There's a little cartoon here. Nope. Yeah, there. Jesus encourages and rebukes his church. One of our favorite family stories is my oldest son was around three at the time. And... uh, And uh, he, yeah, he was around three, and Amy called to him and asked him, Elijah, please come into the living room and clean up your blocks, which was met with silence. So she kind of restated the request, Elijah, please come into the living room, clean up your toys, please put away your blocks, and there was still silence. So she came around the corner to look down the hallway to see where Elijah was, and he was in the hallway waiting for her with his hands on his hips, and he said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> it's just, just three years old, and, but we realized, one, I think we got a, we're showing our kids too many Bible DVDs. Okay. That, that was realization, two. Uh, the second realization, we had to say to him, you know what, actually, those are words only Jesus gets to use, and you don't get to use those on your mother, Okay. That's not an appropriate way to quote scripture. Okay? Get behind me, Satan. Those are only words that Jesus gets to use. They're strong. They're firm. That's full-on rebuke. You're, you're getting in the way. Get behind me. This, I think there's a word of hope in this, that Jesus is Lord and the church is not. And when those two get conflated, uh, there's great damage that can happen. Jesus is Lord. The church isn't. And so there could be just some really good healing that occurs for you if those just got a little more separate. Jesus is Lord. The church is not. Jesus is faithful. The church sadly isn't. Jesus is tender. The church at times has been a tyrant. Jesus suffers under people to win. The church often powers over people. So to separate them, Jesus is Lord, the church is not. Second implication, and this one is hard as well, Jesus is Lord, and I am not. When Jesus, or any, any if God asks us of something, that can be very hard, that can be jarring, because we are people who live in a democracy, and people in democracies are not really being used to Being told what to do by a king. Someone to have the authority to tell me what to do. I mean, our whole culture is based on the rejection of the divine right of kings and queens. And so the the idea that God might interrupt my agenda, my will, by asking me to do something, anything is troubling to the contemporary person. It's an intrusion on my sense of kingship. Jesus is Lord, Lance, you're not. And as one author noted, when we pray, your kingdom come, we're also praying, my kingdom go. Your kingdom come, my kingdom go. These are hard words. Everybody on earth and every religion does something with Jesus. You can't deny the historicity of this person, what's happened since his death and resurrection. And so the question is very much a live question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And so we're going to just let that question hang. Um, One of my preaching teachers said uh, sermons, just so you know, so I'm borrowing some authority here. uh, He said, good sermons um, don't end with a tidy wrapping and a, a good ending. So we're going to just leave this with a bad ending uh, today. Just with that question hanging in. I've got three other notes. I'm just about, I'm axing them right now. Okay, three other pages of notes. We're going to ax them and just let that question hang in the air. Is this just a claim to consider like in the the little religious aisle of life? Is that what Jesus' lordship is or, bite? or, or is, it, is the claim over the totality of my life and our collective life? If it's just in the religious aisle, then I can keep it there, and it's not all that disturbing. If that claim has more to do with just the little religious section of life, uh, then the implications of this are massive, really, really huge. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? So let's take a moment of silence here. Let's just let that question linger. Maybe let that question animate our lunch discussions. Who, who, who is Jesus to you currently? Who do you say that I am? Who do you, who do you say that he is? Maybe that could uh, inform lunch. But before we get there, I already mentioned lunch now. We're thinking of it. But before we get there, we're going to have a meal here first. And before that, let's have some silence and let that question linger. And uh, the band, you can come up, and uh, we'll move into a time of response.